everyone, and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we're here this week with another deep dive episode. 3T recently wound down its carbon fiber frame production in Asia and brought it in-house to Italy. Manufacturing frames the same way would have been prohibitively expensive with Italian labor costs, though. So instead, 3T has developed an entirely new and highly automated process that not only dramatically slashes the amount of manual labor required, but also supposedly makes the frames better. So what's the secret sauce in 3T's new frame building technology, and what are the company's plans for it moving forward? In this episode of the Nerd Alert podcast, we sit down, virtually of course, with 3T co-owner Gerard Vrooman, who gives us the full scoop on what this technology is, how it's different, and what its future might look like. Let's take a listen. Gerard, it's always nice to have you on this show. I feel like we are coming up to the normal time of year when we would sort of have our annual meeting at Eurobike, but I'm not going this year. I'm kind of sad about it, actually. Yeah, I'm, uh, I mean... <laughs> If the show is on, you hate going, and when it's not on, you hate that it's not on. So, uh, uh, and now, and now it's sort of on, but nobody's going. So it's uh, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird situation. But yeah, I'm not going either. Uh, we'd already with Open already decided, you know, long before we wouldn't be going. But uh, yeah, it just, I mean, what are you going to do there? Sell bikes that are already sold? It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. That's how it goes, I guess, with these things. But Interbike's gone the same way. Now they're going to move Eurobike, and we'll see what happens. But Yep. Yeah. Well, I guess mostly I'm a little sad that I'm going to miss the last show in Friedrichshafen. So I'm not going to have any reason to go to Friedrichshafen ever again. This is true. And then, uh, you know, then you'll finally find out that aside from the traffic jams, it was a pretty cool time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Gerard, thanks for being on this show. I really appreciate it. Um, You've had quite a lot going on at 3T lately, and this particular news that we're going to be talking about is actually kind of not really news, I should say, anymore, because this was announced a little while ago. Um, but it's something that I've been wanting to catch up with you uh, about for quite a while, so I'm glad we were able to catch up now, finally. Um, 3T is now manufacturing your frames back in Italy instead of Asia, uh, which is a pretty big deal. Um, so I kind of want to, before we get into that whole subject, I wanted to back up a little bit um, because I know you started building frames in, I believe, 2015, I think, right? Oh, oh that's a trick question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to say 16. 16, okay. Explorer was 16, yeah. Okay. Well, either way, when 3T first decided that uh, they were going to get into the carbon frame business, how did the company decide on where those frames were going to be built and by whom? Well, obviously, I, 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 I'd, uh, I'd made some frames before in my life, but, you know, obviously since, uh, since we founded Cervelo, so, uh, I mean, I had a lot of relationships, and, and so it was, uh, you know, it was basically, you know, among those brands uh, or among those uh, companies, uh, you know, we were sort of choosing uh, where to go and, and some other ones that we knew indirectly, so we, you know, just visited factories and... Uh, and I made our decision. And uh, I mean, even at that time, we were sort of thinking uh, about domestic production. Even in the Cervelo days, we were always saying, hey, if we could just produce the frame for, even if it's double the price, right? We'd do that. But it just was always impossible. But I think now we slowly started to figure out ways that uh, that we could do it. So why was it impossible? I mean, so in, in, in 2016, it seemed like 
the almost the default decision was to have carbon frames manufactured in Asia, certainly at, at least at any sort of reasonable scale, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, even the ones that have a nice Made in Italy sticker on them often are made in China, right? So as I think we both know. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely the default decision is uh, is to make uh, stuff in Asia. And I mean, it's, it, it's a self-reinforcing effect, right? Once there is a lot of production of of any product in a certain area, you know, that area becomes more and more knowledgeable and, and, and more and more, you know, specialized in, in, in doing that. So, uh, it's not just that there are, uh, carbon factories all there on, you know, a hundred square kilometers. It's also that all the suppliers, right? I mean, so the car material, the, the screws, the other little things you need, like everything is there. So you get a whole supply chain that's, that's bundled together there and, and quite efficient. So then to jump out of that, um, you know, it's not just that, you know, labor is more expensive in Italy and all these other things, but, but everything is more expensive because none of these other things are there in, in, in that same, you know, shape or form either. So, uh, so it becomes harder and harder to, to break away from, from that sort of, you know, industry-wide decision to go produce something somewhere. I mean, there are some pros to having frames made by these third-party manufacturers in Asia too, right? I mean, it, my understanding is that you know, they've been doing it for a long time and they've gotten quite good at it, right? Yeah, I think they, I mean, the, I, I think the way to see it is they are very good at doing what they're doing or a couple percent different, right? So there's not a very strong motivation to try out very new things. Because, you know, trying out costs time and you could just spend that time producing and selling what you're producing, right? So, and of course that serves the bike industry quite well because also most bike manufacturers don't have any production knowledge. So there aren't really many bike companies that are saying, hey, could you do these things differently? You know, they're, they're actually happy that the supplier knows what they're doing and within the constraints that the supplier has, you know, is willing to, you know, to pump out their frames and, and you know, so in the end, a lot of frames will be quite similar, except the shapes are different, right? But on the inside, they're they're made the same way and with similar materials and everything like that. So, so then you have if you're a manufacturer that or a brand that wants to do that differently, then you now you have two options. You can go to one of those suppliers and say, "I want you to do it differently, and this is how you you should do it." And and they, if you have a good relationship, they'll do that. But of course, the odds are that they'll not be doing it just for you. <laughs> Right. So uh, you're making everybody smarter and better. So that's just a, a very short lived advantage or or you can do it yourself. Well, and I guess also there are probably some disadvantages to having these frames being produced so far away from where a lot of these companies, a lot of the, the, the actual brands are located, right? Is where a lot of the yeah, I think so. I mean, is happening. you know, you see that. I mean, of course, now in the extreme, right, when nobody can travel, then you really see what the problem is from manufacturing so far away. But even before that, of course, um, you know, most brands do not have a constant presence at these factories. And so, um, yeah, you're, I mean, of course, if you have good relationships and, and some, some brands do, then, then, then that's quite okay. But, you know, it also means that you could be surprised by things, right? That, uh, uh, and, and for just, just the fact that, uh, you know, when a, when a factory has 10 or 20 customers, you know, the, the one that visits the most often probably gets the best service, right? So, um, and then if you're visiting all the time, then, you know, 
it, uh, it, it becomes quite a hassle. So yeah, certainly there, there's advantage of that even in, in good travel times, but, uh, but to the extreme. So in the past uh, year and a half. Right. Okay. Well, you had mentioned early on that 3T always, and even when you were at Cervelo, um, you'd always had this idea of doing, um, I guess, domestic or production that's really close to home. Um, my understanding, however, is that the the economics of manufacturing carbon frames is a, in Asia has been such for such a long time that it just was really, really hard to justify economically that argument. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I mean, there's two two main reasons. First is that because they produce so many frames and have that whole supply chain, it is very efficient, right? And on top of that, they, of course, they have a labor cost advantage. So um, people always focus on that second part, like, oh, labor is less expensive in Asia. So, but it's really those two things together, right? So um, you, you need to solve both of those problems uh, for it to work. Not just say like okay, well let's let's go to some other place. Uh, you know, you can uh, if you're in Europe, you can go produce in uh, in Romania, which is less expensive than France or Italy. Or if you're in the States, you can decide to to produce in Mexico. Or you know, that's also more local, easier to get to. All these things, but but yeah, you still can't find the all those little parts in Mexico as easily as you can in uh, in Guangdong. So, at what point did Three T come to the conclusion that there were finally more upsides than downsides to bringing frame manufacturing in-house. We sort of had that idea from the start, but we also didn't want to take on too much, right? If you have a completely new product and you're going to do it in a new facility and you're going to, you know, I mean, you're, you're going to spend so much, so much time getting all of that right. So, uh, so the decision I think was the correct one to first produce that, you know, in a, in a known environment where we knew we could get, you know, reliable supply and, and work with a supplier that we know well enough that we can we can do some special things and it won't leak to uh, you know some of our competitors that produce in the same facility. Um, but already then you know the like I said the dream was already there at Cervelo, so that that has never that has never died. Um, and I think at the same time, you know there was just that realization because at, at Cervelo, of course, we'd done Project California, right, which was our own manufacturing. But, uh, you know, at the super high end and also just very expensive, certainly not cracking the nut of how to do it cost effectively in the West, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, but, and of course, the, you know, the, the only conclusion, which the conclusion is quite easy, is that you have to manufacture in a completely different way. And then what that way looks like and to actually then get that done, uh, you know, those are, you know, a harder and an even harder uh, question to answer. Um, but that's what it comes down to, right? If you, if you produce, uh, in Europe or in the U S using the same methodology as they use in Asia, you will never be cost effective. Right. And, and so there are, of course, a lot of brands that do that. Right. I mean, there are a lot of boutique brands that basically produce the way they do in Asia. Um, uh, and they can do that at low volume and, uh, high prices and all of that, but you can't really do that at, at scale. Um, and so that's why you see, you know, a lot of carbon manufacturers in that sort of segment that do, you know, a couple hundred frames per year, or, you know, and that you can do. Um, but to really do that at a volume, uh, is, uh, would be a, a struggle. So how exactly is 3T making these frames? Cause you said that it really, the only way to make it happen is to do it differently. So how is this different? Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, the, 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 the basic easy, 
decision, of course, is that when labor is more expensive, you can't spend that much labor on the frame, right? So that, that's basically the, the core of everything. You need to automate things that can be automated. And basically, the automation has two, uh, two uh, effects, a direct and indirect one. The direct one is that, of course, the things that you automate, you don't have to pay labor on, right? That's logical. But also, the automation is more exact, uh, more repeatable. So also, when you look at you know, Asian manufacturing, a lot of time is spent in finishing, right? Because the, the outcome is not perfect, and then they go and sand and do all these things. So if you can automate the process uh, in certain ways that it just comes out of the mold better, then you also save time there in the, in the follow-up uh, to the whole process. So those are really, really the, two, the two main steps that are you know, in, in concept, of course, quite, quite easy and logical, but then you just have to go and technically do it. As far as the automation goes, what parts are being automated here? Because I, I know that we have talked about this sort of thing on the Nerd Alert podcast a, a fair number of times in the past, but traditionally carbon frames, like as you said, has there's an awful lot of manual labor involved with all these little pieces of pre-preg carbon fiber plies that are, you know, a, that are placed into the molds by hand and there's all these super complex layup schedules and there's all this all these time all these different pieces like literally hundreds of pieces going into every frame yeah so to avoid all that and what you said you're you're trying to incorporate more automation what exactly is being automated here yeah so when you when you think about those pre-break pieces right so you know you can easily have 300 pieces in a 900 gram frame so the average piece is only three grams i mean it's tiny right and then so somebody by hand is putting that somewhere so you put in the a black piece of carbon on top of a whole sheet of black carbon that's uh, you know going to be a tube i mean the positioning of that like it's 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 a nightmare when you think about it right it's uh, it's amazing it works so well <laughs> um but uh, so yeah i mean that that's the, the 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 thing we want to do is we want to get you know the carbon into that frame shape uh without needing all that labor right so the uh, I mean, there's there's several ways to do that, but the the one we chose is uh, is winding. So, uh, and you know, instead of having these sheets of uh, pre-impregnated uh, carbon, we have just um, you know a, a, the filament of the of the like I say, a string of uh, of carbon. And as you know, tubes rotate, we we move the string along, and then uh, the the carbon is. Uh, applied that way and also the carbon is dry so it's not impregnated with the resin yet um, and by changing you know how the machine works how, how fast it speeds and the direction everything you can change the angle of the carbon relative to let's say a tube and uh, I mean that's what carbon fiber manufacturing is all about right you want to put the carbon in the direction where it can do the most work where it can provide you know the stiffness or the strength that you need that's why I also have all these different pieces, so you can orient your your uh, fibers the right way. Now, when you uh, filament wind, so you put you know this individual string instead of a sheet on, you can basically do everything you want, except that um, you know when you think about a rotating tube and you uh, put the string along, you can never really get the string ninety like exactly along the tube, right? So there's always an angle to the main axis of the tube. But for ultimate stiffness, you need quite a bit of carbon fiber that's exactly in the direction of the tube. So the one thing we have is we have a built a winding machine that can also do these zero degree um, directions for the carbon fiber. Hmm. So 
we, we can wind and you know you also need a lot of 45 degrees and other degrees but then we can also put uh, in, in our in our whole uh, setup, we can put uh, zero degree fibers on on the frame. Mm, and, interesting. Um, and so yeah, so that's what we try to do. In you know, we try to wind as much of the frame as possible. There are some areas where you still want some woven for reinforcements. Like let's say a simple thing is uh, around the you know the water bottle boss. You want some woven material there so that you know you you don't get cracking from when you drill through it and, and put the uh, the bosses in. Things like that, but uh, you know, and some other areas that are complex as well. But the goal is to to wind as much as possible because we can control exactly where the fibers go, and um, and we can just uh, you know wait for the machine to do it. I mean, essentially, in in concept, what you have here is sort of like you know, kind of like what you have with a spool of thread, right? Uh, to to some degree, anyway. Yeah, it's the spool of thread in reverse. Okay. Um, how, how complex can you get with this as far as, I mean, you, you said that you can do quite a lot as far as, uh, fiber directions, but how complex can you get in terms of geometry? Because like looking at the, the race max frame, for example, I mean, it's a very complex shape. There are a variety of, you know, complex joints and fairly tight angles, stuff like that. Um, how do you get around some of that when using this sort of process because traditionally filament winding has really mainly been done for you know kind of like straight mostly round-ish tubes right yeah so um so there's two things to the geometry first of course that a frame is made up of a whole bunch of triangles and the other one is that the cross section of the tube is is not round right um so when you look at traditional prepreg um layup i mean you the front triangle goes into the mold as one piece, but the tubes are usually not uh, laid up as one piece. So uh, in a factory, you will see that they'll still make a head tube, they'll make a top tube, a, a, a down tube, maybe C tube. And then those uh, four sub uh, assemblies are sort of uh, slid into each other and then put into the mold. And then that comes out as one piece. But so it's not like the whole triangle is laid up in one piece from the get go. So, um, you know, similarly, uh, when we do the winding, we don't necessarily need to wind, you know, this whole triangle around or anything like that. We can wind individual tubes or two tubes as long as it's not closed. I mean, you can also wind with closed uh, shapes, but then you get a bit more limited. But so, for example, we can make, a, you know, a down tube and a head tube in one piece uh, and, and things like that. And then so we have a couple of these sub-assemblies and those we can slide into each other. And that becomes, for example, a front triangle. So that the fact that they're you know complex complex triangles instead of just straight tubes doesn't really uh, have any impact on us then the the cross section so you know when you have a say a down tube that has you know its front half of an airfoil and then the back is flat so you have very sharp corners on the on the sides um, and you have to remember uh, as I said before the, the fiber is not yet impregnated so the fiber in principle is dry and doesn't stick so that makes it very difficult to keep keep the fiber there where you want it to be. So then you need some tricks that, unfortunately, I can't tell you <laughs> that keep the fiber uh, that keep the fiber in the right spot. But uh, yeah, I mean, when you the other th thing is though, right? I mean, it's it's it, it it's programmed, right? So once you've programmed it such that it does the things you need to get it in the right spot, the next frame will also be in the right spot, right? Um, so. I mean, that's a bit of a difference with, 
uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot more hours going into the setup of production, but then, you know, a lot fewer in the, in the actual production. So there, yeah, there's a lot more tinkering going on at the, at the front end. So, uh, you mentioned that these fibers are wound dry. Uh, so normally fibers are, like you said, coated with a certain amount of, uh, of uncured resin. So you have these sub assemblies of dry wound carbon fiber that you've put together, mm-hmm. um, and then I guess you put them, you sort of assemble them all together, I guess, sort of puzzle-like in a sense. And then, and then at that point, do they go into some sort of mold? Yeah, I mean, all puzzled, it's a, it's really a, you know, 18-month, uh, you know, baby puzzle, right? There's just two or three pieces. So, um, but yes, I mean, so those are, uh, you know, in the winding and in the shapes, there's a way that they sort of key together, let's say. Um, and then that goes into a mold. And the mold is closed, and then so in pre-preg, right? You you have the pre-impregnated sheets. They go into this layup. You put them in the mold, and then all, all you do is you you know you you add pressure from the inside of the tube, and you raise the temperature, and the you know the resin that's already on those sheets sort of uh, you know melts, and it all sort of glues together. Um, so in our case, of course, it's just a dry fiber in there, so we can close it, and we can. Uh, um, you know, make it ready, but we still then have to inject uh, the resin because there's no resin in the fiber. So we inject the resin uh, in certain spots of the mold and it gets sucked out in other parts of the mold and that allows the resin to go through the whole structure uh, so that you make sure that, uh, you know, every every part of the carbon fiber has been in touch with the resin because that's, um, I mean, that's the major issue with this kind of uh production to solve is that to make sure the resin gets everywhere right because if you have dry fibers in the finished product then those fibers aren't stuck together and that is prone for failure right? well then you just don't have a frame because i mean that's just you know then, then it's uh that you have a part of the frame that's as stiff as a t-shirt right so then it's just uh, that's game over so <laughs> um yeah I, i'd imagine there were a lot of interesting frames to come out of this process early on as far as yeah, ones I mean, that usually work quite good. Uh, I mean, the the resin flow is uh, is is very uh, it's very unpredictable. It's uh, it's probably like you know predicting how uh, how the lava is going to come from this volcano kind of thing, right? So, so you you know you work very hard to make sure it flows in a certain direction. All of a sudden, at some other place where you never had a problem, uh, all of a sudden you have dry spots, right? And so it's a uh, it's definitely a learning curve. But then again, you know, once you've got that dialed in. Um, and there's lots of things to work with, right? Like the, the, the points where you inject, um, the, for example, the order of the, of, of, of your layup, right. Can have an effect because it, um, it likes to flow along your fibers. It doesn't want to flow through your fibers necessarily. Right. So when you change your layup, you can also affect where the resin goes, uh, the pressures you use, uh, you know that the time first you inject it, and then at some point you open the valve so that the res the, the excess resin can flow out. But you know, with it, how long you wait with doing that before? Like so, there's a lot of things you can do there to uh, uh, to to have an effect on the result. Um, but but at the same time, it is a little bit of voodoo until you get it right. How similar is this to to the to the RTM manufacturing method that time? So has the used injection for a long time? is RTM. So okay. I mean, RTM is just a is a is a is an injection method, right? So right. So the injection is RTM, and then of course you can RTM 
uh, you know, dry sheets that you could have done, or you can RGM something that you've wound, or you can uh, sort of really the, the creating the layup and then how you get the resin in there are just two separate processes. And for each, you can choose one of a number of, of methods. Okay. Cause I mean, it, it sounds like from what I understand, this sort of, this sort of dry winding and resin injection after the fact is something that um, a lot of people in the automotive industry are looking at too for, for kind of more mass produced parts, right? Yeah. So you see in automotive, um, you don't see a lot of winding. I mean, it's getting more now, but for, for really complex parts. Um, so, and you also don't have the same, uh, weight obsession that the bike industry has, you know, like you just put in a bigger motor. Uh, I mean, not that they don't care about weight, but not to the same extent. And, and the economics are even more important, right? That's why a bike can cost as much as a, as a car. Um, and so you, you see, uh, you see winding on a lot of rotational parts like drive shafts and things like that, where people have experimented with, uh, with winding you see in other, like say if they have, a like a carbon fiber chassis or something like that, you see a lot of mats of carbon fiber being used because I mean, they, I mean, they have a lot of big surfaces, right? Or whatever BMW makes a carbon roof for the M3. I mean, that's just, of course you use sheets of, uh, carbon flat. Like why would you start winding a flat surface? Right. So, um, so you see a lot of that, but then in combination with RTM indeed. Yeah. Okay. And also in the com more complex, for example, uh, I saw the, the i3, their small electric car, uh, the, their whole uh, car, the whole structure is carbon, but those are also mostly mats, and then a uh, you know a bunch of different parts that are then uh, uh, glued together afterwards to make the more complex part. Okay, um, I mean you mentioned one obviously pretty important thing to the bike industry that consumers and I guess the bike industry in general is pretty uh, weight obsessed. I guess we should, we can say. Um, yeah. Given how advanced traditional methods are for carbon fiber manufacturing, and I guess how really relatively new this method of manufacturing is that you're employing, can you make frames that are just as technologically good as the old traditional methods? Yeah, so our RaceMax Italia is uh, both lighter and a little bit stiffer than the, uh, than the standard RaceMax, so the answer there is, is yes. Um, traditionally, um, a switch to RTM will make a part heavier. I mean, I think in 90% of the cases that that is true. Um, but of course that's also, those are often cases from industries where the weight was not that crucial, right. Or where the, the focus was really on, uh, on the economics of the whole project. Right. So, um, I mean, if, if the costs are all you care about and the weight is not super important, then yes, RTM will be a bit heavier because that's the part, you know, that's the, the point in the, in the whole development process where you stop and just go into production. Right. Um, but if you are in an industry like the bike industry where the weight is important, then you decide not to stop there and you keep pushing. And that's also where, you know, our team really had to do most of the work right there. That's where you can't just read up on how others have done it because most people stopped at that point. Um, so that's really the, yeah, the, 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 the bulk of really their, their, their special work and their breakthroughs is on, 
on on not accepting that it would be heavier and and working until it wasn't do you given that a lot of this process is uh secret or proprietary i guess given how things go in the bike industry it seems like either you know if information doesn't eventually get spread out somehow it does seem that oftentimes other companies figure out similar solutions to the same problems. Do you foresee at some point, given the way carbon fiber manufacturing is going in Asia with increasing labor costs, that sort of thing, um, do you see at some point that a lot more companies might build their frames in this a similar way that you are? Um, I, I think so. I mean, uh, maybe because they just call us and we make them for them. But, uh, um, so, I mean, they're, they're, on one hand, yes, and on one hand, no. You know, no in the sense that, as we said before, the vast, vast, vast majority of bike companies know nothing about manufacturing, right? So the thought of manufacturing yourself is very daunting to them. It's not like for me, okay, I'm a, I'm a bike company owner, but I'm also an engineer. So for me, it sounds like a, a really nice project right not like something that uh, I would have to be scared about um, so there's a lot of resistance to changing the model like I mean the model sort of works right if you're willing to order 24 months in advance and some other things then this this model sort of works and uh, you know maybe every year or two you have a, a recall or something like that and you put that behind you you move on and sometimes you know you have uh, one of your pros break their handlebar on uh, you know worldwide television and then uh you, oh that you sounded like that a... and then you know what i mean like it, it, it <laughs> that's that's not it, a personal gerard no no hey that's a very impressive company right and i think their response <laughs> is also very good so uh but you know these things happen right and and but more my example is that there are very few companies who are more serious about quality control than they are right I mean, because you also know, I mean, they've had some problems in the past with a fork, right? And then they went just, you know, bonkers on on all the tech and QC they installed to make sure that would never happen again, right? So, um, but when I say like that, so the, you know, of course those things are bad, but the, the, the frequency in which they happen is low enough that the overall model still makes sense to most of the bike industry, right? So, but... But at the same time, when people see that, hey, you can do this local to the market um, and you can do this in a way that is cost effective, then, of course, a lot of people are going to follow, whether they do that themselves or whether, you know, companies that now produce in China are also going to change their processes. And But I know for, for us, um, you know, now that we have this production cell working, like once we've scaled up production in Italy, uh, we're certainly considering putting uh you know a same production cell in the us right so that you can have a also local production there uh, and and you know of course be close to the market be able to react quicker to any changes in needs that that market has uh, avoid any you know additional shipping costs any duty problems etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think in the world that we live in uh and also just you know from a geopolitical point of view there are more and more reasons to produce locally. So when there are ways to do that in a cost-effective way, um, then I think more and more companies will will want to do that. Whether they then have the skills to do it or need to outsource that is an, is another 
another matter. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you a couple of fairly specific questions that I'm not sure that you'll be able to answer, or at least not sure that you uh, will be willing to put out in the world. Um, you mentioned that in the traditional model, companies are having to place these orders for frames you know, maybe 24 months in advance, which seems incredible. I know that that's the norm, but from the outside, I think for a lot of people to hear that orders for these frames are having to be placed two years in advance of when they're produced, which is, again, some matter of months earlier than when they're actually available on the market. And then, again, lag time with when they're developed. It's just a huge lag time between when bikes are conceived to when they are actually sold. Um, yeah, I mean, part of that is the whole COVID supply chain craziness, right? I mean, I would normally sure. you would you would maybe forecast it to your factory year in advance, and then you can still make some adjustments to the size and the color and things like that, right? So it's not like it's completely, you know, set in stone. But uh, yeah, that's. Um, but the thing is, when everybody sort of produces in the same way, and everybody is dealing with that same situation, it's not really. A disadvantage or a real problem is it i mean it's a problem in the sense that everybody gets their forecasting wrong and then there's warehouses full of stuff and um you know but 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 everybody has that problem right so it's sort of built in the whole whole industry system so how much can you compress that timeline now that you are able to do things in-house like let's say if you were doing the traditional model and you would have to place an order now you'd get your frames two years from now the way you're doing it now once you get to that point where you are ready to go into production, how much faster is th are things now? Yeah, so now basically, I mean, we're in production now, right? So we've produced this Founders Edition and uh, have delivered the first uh, frames and are, you know, uh, by the end of the year, we'll deliver all of them and also this 60th anniversary uh, Dreambox uh, craziness, um, you know, that starts shipping in November. So we're producing all those frames. Um, and then next year we really ramp up uh, the, the numbers. Um, so when we're in, in principle, you know, it's a couple of weeks now from, from getting the order to producing the frame, right? But that's, um, but it depends a bit on how you, who you, how you define that, right? Because I mean, of course, now already we get more orders than we can possibly produce. So if your production <laughs> capacity is not sufficient, then then what's really a fair number to mention there? Or you can also say now, well, if you order today, actually, it will be probably seven months before you get the frame because we just haven't ramped up yet. So, um, but I mean, once you're in full production and you have the you know the the, the capacity set and everything like that, then it's uh, yeah, it's under a month to do that. Um, but of course, it doesn't mean you have full flexibility just within a month's notice, right? I mean, this assumes that you've ordered your carbon fiber on time, right? It assumes that you, so it's not like you could just on day one, you, you, you call the supplier for the carbon fiber and on day 30, you have your frame, right? There, there are always things you need to do in advance. But I think what is important by, with this local production is the flexibility uh, is moved to a much later point in the process, right? Because uh, first of all, because you're using the fiber for this winding, you really have a raw material that you start with, right? A raw material that stays good forever, right? Prepreg needs to be stored in a freezer, right? And has a shelf life and then it goes bad. So now for factories that need to order prepreg and want to have some safety stock because who knows what the creation is in 2022, 2023 is, 
that stock is going to go bad if things don't materialize. Like when you have these spools with fiber, I mean, they can sit there for, uh, for a century, right? It doesn't matter. So, uh, and then also, like, what exactly you need, what weave, what thickness, all these, like, we don't have to make that decision until we turn on the winder to put, to apply, you know, these strings of carbon fiber onto, onto the frame. So, um, so the, the things that have a longer lead time are the very, very basic uh, products that you can store forever and are all also relatively inexpensive, right? It's once you start to manipulate these things, which in pre-prec, there's already a lot of manipulation having been done. That's where your stock is more expensive and uh, you know doesn't hold as long. Okay. Um, so I guess, sorry, the, I guess the answer to the question that I was asking is far more complicated than just a simple question, but... Um, uh, yes, it tends I mean, to go so, that way, uh, James. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but I guess in, in principle, I mean, would you, can you say that you effectively can cut the lead time now by, you know, half or like, you know, can you, can you chop it down from a no, year I mean, I, down to... Realistically, realistically, when we're in full production, we will produce in under a month. And how I define that is, that um, what, what we will do there is that because we do this, we can also customize the product. For example, um, you know, if the customer uh, wants their frame for one buy only, um, you know, we don't have to put a front derailleur on, but also the whole shape that, uh, you know, the front derailleur hanger usually cuts out of the C-tube stuff, we can, we can get rid of that, right? We can customize the frame for having uh, you know, DI2 or SRAM access or mechanical shifting and just not have holes anywhere in the frame that you don't need. Like, so all these things we can do for the customer, right, to make the, the frame just exactly as, as they want. And uh, to do that, uh, the goal in full production would be to do that under a month. So you order it and your frame will be produced with those features and painted in whatever color scheme you've desired and then shipped to you. In a month. So, how scalable is this technology? I mean, is it is it really only limited to however amount of capital you have available to you know, kind of purchase the machines and that sort of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, the in principle, yes. I mean, it's a, it's quite a compact production cell, um, and the machines we build ourselves. So, um, so it's a. Uh, in in that sense, the production capacity can be can be ramped up really quickly, and it's also because the the cell itself is quite small that there's also not really a reason to put all those cells in the same spot. And so you can you know bring it as I said like you know put a cell in the U.S. and uh, you know maybe put 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 one in Asia right for demand there, put one in Australia, um, put one in so, my garage. Uh, <laughs> sorry, put one in my garage. Well, I mean, seriously, but my, my, uh, is it too early to say this? Well, it doesn't matter. Who's listening? To this <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, what, what for me would be a lot of fun would be to have like, say, 10 flagship stores and in the back of each store is a production cell. Um, so you can actually, you know, also partially, not everything, but partially see how your frame is being made, uh, you know, in, uh, potentially in the city you live in. That would be incredibly, incredibly cool. Um, hmm, I see a little, a little glimpse into, into your, your future dreams here. Um, one last thing that, again, I don't know how specific you can get on this, but 
we talked a little bit about how being able to move production domestically in-house or just having it be local um, is something that is only possible if you are able to control your costs, of course. Um, you're obviously cutting out a lot of the manual labor costs, which my understanding has always been for traditional frame manufacturing methods could be as much as like 75, 80% of the total cost of the frame. Um, so you're cutting down on the manual labor part now, but you're increasing costs else, elsewhere. But overall, are you essentially producing frames now at similar cost as you were before? I guess kind of barring initial tooling costs, that sort of thing. Yes. So I think by early 2022, the answer is yes. So we're still uh, today, um, you know, there are some steps that are half automated, things like that. And there's always going to be labor involved, right? But I mean, we started with, uh, you know, in Asia, maybe there's 50 hours and we started at 50 and then we got to 10 and then we got to nine and eight. And so we're, um, we're still bringing down uh, the number of hours. And uh, once we have that completed, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, the next uh, several months, that will be true. So that's not not true for, uh, uh, say, for the Founders Edition and for this uh, 60th anniversary frame. But if you order a frame uh, next March, uh, then that will be true. And that and that's also, of course, when we're ramping up and, and increasing the volume because then uh, you know there's a, there's a lot more frames in our in our range that we can replace uh, with an Italian-made frame. Man, well, Gerard, this sounds super exciting. I hope at some point. If you don't open up a local store that I can get to close by, that uh, I'd love to be able to see this someday. Um, yeah, well, I mean, definitely you're uh, you're invited in, and uh, you know we have to blindfold you at some spots, but uh, you can see others. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I guess you're not coming to Eurobike. So a quick jaunt down uh, to Italy is not in the in the cards. But uh, no, anytime uh, you want to swing by, then uh, then let's uh, let's set that up. Cool. Sounds good. I will take you up on that at some point. Whenever whenever I. I'm getting on a plane again. It's been almost two years at this point. It feels weird. <laughs> Isn't it nice? It is. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. All right, Gerard, thanks again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was incredibly interesting and insightful. I hope our listeners feel the same way. Um, and yeah, someday I would love, again, uh, someday I hope to see this. And then maybe we can talk about it some more and see, maybe we can catch up in a few months' time and see where this is all going because I'd love to hear how this is progressing. Sounds like a plan and uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, probably if we can get you to the factory, then maybe at least we can get you one of the Italian frames to uh, take a look at at some point. But uh, I think your garage is full enough already if I look behind it's, you. But... It's pretty full. It's pretty full. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right. Thanks again, Gerard. I'll see you thanks, soon. James. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks as always for listening to the Nerd Alert podcast. If you liked what you heard here, please consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to Nerd Alert through whatever service you use to get your podcasts. And please tell a buddy about Nerd Alert because, well, nerding out is more fun with more people. Next week's Nerd Alert episode will be brought to you by Kaylee Ronan and Zach on site at the UCI World Championships in Belgium. Make sure you don't miss that one, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>